Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your audio source for news in Hoosier Law, brought to you by Taft. I'm Jordan Morey, Managing Editor of the Indiana Lawyer and your host. And I'm Olivia Covington, co-host and editor of the Indiana Lawyer. Wherever you're listening from today, thanks for joining us. Today's show will open with some recent headlines before going into a one-on-one interview with a leader from the Hoosier legal community. This week's guest is Laura Adamitis Therion, president of the Indiana Paralegal Association. We've got a lot to catch up on since our last issue, so let's get started. Today is April 6th, 2022, and these are your headlines. First, we've got some news about the search for Indiana's next Supreme Court justice. Indiana lawyer reporter Katie Stancombe was there for each of the 10 finalist interviews on Tuesday. Katie? I attended the second round of in-person interviews of the final contenders to fill an upcoming vacancy on the Indiana Supreme Court. The seven-member Indiana Judicial Nominating Commission posed a variety of questions to the 10 applicants who are vying to succeed Justice Stephen David, who's retiring this fall. Questions ranged from judicial philosophies and lived experiences that will accompany candidates if selected to the bench, to thought-provoking questions about sentencing guidelines, judicial discretion, and where applicants would land on Brown v. Board of Education in light of star decisis. The commission also asked about underrepresentation in the legal profession and whether personal experiences should influence judicial decision-making. Candidates interviewed Tuesday in Indianapolis included William Barrett, partner at Williams, Barrett, and Wilkowski in Greenwood, Judge Jennifer DeGroote of the Allen Superior Court, Justin Forkner, Chief Administrative Officer in the Indiana Supreme Court Office of Judicial Administration, Judge Ryan Gardner of the Marion Superior Court, Judge Dana Kenworthy of the Grant Superior Court, Judge Gretchen Lund of Elkhart Superior Court, Judge Derek Bolter of the Court of Appeals of Indiana, Patrick Price, Special Counsel in the Office of Management and Budget and General Counsel to the State Budget Agency, Judge Rudolph Pyle of the Court of Appeals of Indiana, and Judge Mark Spitzer of the Grant Circuit Court. The full day of interviews was hosted by the JNC, led by Indiana Chief Justice Loretta Rush, who will submit the names of three finalists to Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb. He will then make the final selection on David's successor. Those names weren't available at our recording deadline, but they're live now on our website. Once the names of the three finalists are submitted to Holcomb, he'll have 60 days to select the state's next justice. This will be his second pick for the high court following Justice Christopher Goff in 2017. Stay tuned for the names of the three finalists and more detailed coverage of what all 10 finalists had to say during the second round of interviews. Back to you, Jordan. Next, let's shift into some COVID news. COVID cases are on the decline right now, but a court battle over university COVID policies is ramping up after a March 31st ruling from the Court of Appeals of Indiana. The decision came in a consolidated case against Indiana University and Purdue University, both of which closed facilities and moved classes online in the spring of 2020. Students from both schools filed class action lawsuits, claiming the universities breached their contracts by not providing promised in-person instruction. The students also sought a refund for on-campus services they didn't receive due to COVID restrictions. Judges in Monroe and Tippecanoe counties denied the school's respective motions for judgment on the pleadings and to dismiss. So the universities appealed, arguing the statewide public health emergency and related executive orders made it impossible to provide in-person instruction. But the COA found sufficient claims to allow the cases to continue. According to Judge Terry Crone, who wrote the appellate opinion, 
The viability of the school's affirmative defense that the executive orders made it impossible to provide in-person services is premature at this stage of the proceedings. Also, the COA declined to assess the enforceability of a 2020 law protecting certain entities from COVID-related contractual or unjust enrichment claims. That's because the argument regarding Public Law 166-2021 was not raised in the trial courts. We'll keep an eye on this case and let you know as new decisions come down. Next up, we've got another lawsuit to tell you about. This one filed by an Elkhart man who is suing local law enforcement officials after he was cleared of a murder following nearly 17 years in prison. Here's Indiana Lawyer Editor Olivia Covington with that story. Thanks, Jordan. If you've been reading Indiana Lawyer for a while, you've probably seen my coverage of the case of Andrew Royer, an Elkhart man who was convicted in 2005 of murdering 94-year-old Helen Saylor. Andy Royer is now 46 years old, but he is described as having the mind of a child due to intellectual disabilities. Royer's co-defendant, Lana Kanan, was exonerated in 2012, but it wasn't until 2020 that Royer secured a new trial. A special judge determined Elkhart County officials had made false statements and withheld key evidence in the trial against Royer, including evidence related to a fingerprint, a witness statement, and the interrogation of Royer that led to his confession to the murder. But Royer has maintained since his conviction that his confession was false. Now, in a lawsuit against several Elkhart County law enforcement officials, he's arguing those officials exploited his mental disability to secure a false confession and hid critical evidence from his defense team that might have prevented his conviction or even the prosecution against him. Andy isn't currently in custody. He was released from jail in April 2020, and one year later, the Court of Appeals of Indiana upheld the order for a new trial. The state dropped its case against him last July. In pursuing a civil suit against Elkhart officials, Royer's team says it's hoping to bring his journey for justice to an end. He's seeking compensatory and punitive damages, attorney fees, and costs for alleged violations of his rights under the U.S. Constitution, other federal law, and state law. According to Royer's legal team, Elkhart County and the city of Elkhart had policies and practices in place that effectively sanctioned the defendant's unlawful conduct, leading to Royer's wrongful conviction. His lawyers are also arguing that Andy's case is not unique in Elkhart County. Andy's case has been led by the Exoneration Project in Chicago in conjunction with the Notre Dame Law School Exoneration Justice Clinic and the Wrongful Conviction Clinic at the IU McKinney School of Law. I've been following this case for several years now, and I'll keep following it as the civil suit unfolds. Check back with our website for periodic updates. Thanks, Olivia. We've got one more lawsuit that we think you'll be interested in, this one focusing on Indiana's foster care system. On March 30th, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals heard arguments in a case pushing for better treatment of Hoosier kids in foster care. The plaintiffs were originally a group of 10 juveniles who were in the custody of the Indiana Department of Child Services taken from abusive homes, then allegedly subjected to additional trauma by being cycled through multiple placements and not receiving adequate care. The case was at the Seventh Circuit after the Indiana Southern District Court denied the state's motion to dismiss. But the appellate panel seemed more skeptical of the lawsuit. There was a common sticking point for the appellate judges throughout the argument. What the court could actually do for the plaintiffs, who now just include two juveniles. The lawsuit seeks injunctive relief but the appellate judges struggle to discern what, specifically, the plaintiffs are trying to enjoin. Lawyer Kristen Bokan, part of the legal team representing the juveniles, told the court that the plaintiffs want DCS to change the way it administers its policies and procedures. But Indiana Solicitor General Thomas Fisher argued the plaintiffs were barred from raising their claims in federal court, and that a federal court ruling would affect the children's ongoing chintz proceedings. 
Like Fisher, the judges questioned the federal court's role in the DCS dispute. At one point, Judge Frank Easterbrook told Bokan, quote, What worries me is that much of the relief that it sounds like your brief says you're seeking is relief for people who are not yet in Chin's proceedings. End quote. In response to the judge's questions, Bokan gave the example of seeking enforcement of a state law that requires lower caseloads for DCS workers. More generally, she said the plaintiffs want DCS to follow its own policies and protect children from harm. Of course, judges' questioning during oral arguments aren't always accurate indicators of how the court will rule. We'll follow this case and let you know what the Seventh Circuit decides. Moving away from the courts, we've got some news about the 2023 U.S. News & World Report's law school rankings. A change in the rankings methodology meant Indiana schools were shuffled around in the annual list. Notre Dame Law was named the nation's 25th best law school, down from its number 22 position last year. The IU Maurer School of Law stayed in the 43rd spot, while IU McKinney cracked the top 100 by taking the number 8 spot, up from number 111 last year. Notre Dame was tied with law schools at George Washington University and the University of Alabama. IU Maurer was tied with the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and IU McKinney was tied with Brooklyn Law School, Florida International University, Howard University, and St. Louis University. The rankings are based on statistical and reputational data collected in fall 2021 and spring 2022 for the 192 law schools that are fully accredited by the ABA. Factors such as peer and professional assessments, LSAT scores, bar passage rates, and school resources all go into reaching the final assessments. Both IU McKinney and IU Maurer earned spots on specialty lists too. IU McKinney was ranked 23rd for part-time law school programs, 15th for legal writing, and 17th for healthcare law. IU Maurer earned the number 15 spot for tax law. To read all the data about Indiana's law schools and to see the full list of rankings, head to our website. Let's wrap up with a couple of headlines that are statewide and national interest. First, Katie has the story of why the Indiana State Nursing Board is under fire from the Department of Justice. A Hoosier nurse who developed an opioid use disorder, or an OUD, after being prescribed pain meds as a teenager, prompted the DOJ to investigate the state's nursing board after she alleged the board violated the Americans with Disabilities Act by denying her participation in a nurse rehab program. On March 25th, the DOJ issued a letter agreeing with the complainant, finding that the nursing board was stopping individuals who take medication to treat OUD from participating in the Indiana State Nurses Assistance Program, or ISNAP, which is intended for nurses with substance abuse disorders. According to the DOJ's findings, the complainant became a licensed registered nurse in Indiana in 2011 while still trying various methods to treat her OUD, including total abstinence, outpatient treatment, therapy, and taking methadone. Nothing worked, and when she self-reported her opioid abuse to ISNAP, she was told she would have to taper off her methadone maintenance program to participate. But she was unable to successfully complete ISNAP under the so-called total abstinence requirement, so her nursing license was placed on indefinite suspension in 2014. In 2016, she saw a new treatment for her OUD and was prescribed buprenorphine for the first time and has been on the mend since. Calling the medication life-saving, she says she intends to remain on the OUD meds indefinitely for fear of a severe relapse. After a year of staying clean, the complainant sought to become a nurse again, but was told she would have to completely taper off of her buprenorphine in order to participate in ISNAP. The DOJ hit back, finding the nursing board violated the ADA 
and continues to violate Title II of the ADA in its treatment of individuals with OUD. It called for the board to adopt or revise written policies to eliminate the ban on ISNAP participants using medication to treat OUD. In response, the nursing board on March 30th issued a notice of intent to adopt a rule to remove the abstinence-based requirement from ISNAP and to require evidence-based treatment. The state nursing board did not respond to a request for comment. Emily Munson, policy director at Indiana Disability Rights, says she immediately saw a violation of Title II of the ADA and the abstinence-only requirement for nurses fighting an OUD. Munson says there's a common misunderstanding of the difference between opioid use and opioid misuse. There has been a lot of attention given to opioid overdoses in the last few years, and those obviously are terrible. Um, But at the same time, I think there's been a lot of vilification of opioids in general, and we're forgetting that there are some people with chronic pain issues that really need opiates. And then there are also folks with opioid use disorder who, because of their changed brain chemistry from being on opiates, really need those uh, drugs like um, methadone or buprenorphine. Longtime ADA attorney Kenneth Seatman of Ogletree Deacons says when a case involves an individual with impairment, every circumstance needs to be considered. Seatman says the DOJ's conclusion is the biggest takeaway. That even if we've got a well-intentioned, solid, uh, and a founded rule in general sense that you want, if we're trying to wean people off of drugs and alcohol, and that's the purpose of our program, then having an abstinence-based treatment dynamic intuitively makes a lot of sense. But in the case of any individual person, those that are administering programs of that nature really have to think about, based on the facts that are in front of us with this particular applicant to come into our program who has a disability and who's gotten clean and wants to stay that way and now wants to practice, Do we need to rethink our rules for that given situation? Would it be reasonable for us to change? Thanks, Katie. Lastly, I want to tell you about an interesting story I'm working on for the next issue of Indiana Lawyer. Over the last couple of years, non-fungible tokens, or NFTs, have become increasingly popular across the globe. NFT data is stored on a blockchain, a form of digital ledger that can be sold and traded. Types of NFT data units may be associated with digital files such as photos, videos, and audio. But where does the law fit into this, particularly in the realm of intellectual property? I attended two different panel discussions this past week on NFT, and I'm speaking to lawyers and law professors to gain a better understanding of where the law fits in with this new digital marketplace and where it could be going in the future. All right, that's it for this week's headlines. As always, visit theindianalawyer.com to learn more about these stories or anything else happening in the Indiana legal community. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear our conversation with the president of the Indiana Paralegal Association. Taft. 
Today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For this week's extended interview, we have Laura Adamitis Therian, president of the Indiana Paralegal Association, with us in studio today. Laura, thanks so much for joining us. As a quick background, the IPA was formed in 1979 as the Indianapolis Paralegal Association in response to the growing need for an organized professional association for paralegals. In 1983, the name was changed to the Indiana Paralegal Association Incorporated and was incorporated as a not-for-profit corporation. IPA is a grassroots organization whose policy is developed by consensus of the majority of its membership. It has grown from an organization consisting of a small handful of pioneer members to a successful collaboration of several hundred paralegals. So kind of to begin with, um, Laura, please tell us about your professional background. Uh, how long have you been a paralegal and why did you decide to go uh, down this career path? Um, let's see, I became a paralegal in 1999 and um, I have always done basically defense work. Um, I've My background consists of um, criminal history defense, nursing home defense, and I am, medical malpractice defense, and then personal injury defense is what I'm currently doing. Um, I've worked at several great firms, um, and I'm at a really good one right now, so I'm excited about that. Um, I decided that um, I love to type. I don't know why. Um, I realized I was pretty good at it. So I always wanted to be like a secretary or an assistant of some sort. Um, and I actually went to Ball State to become an accountant. And I was like, yeah, this is not like high school. I don't know. It's like a foreign language to me at, at the college level. Um, so one of my roommates, her mother, was the president of International Business College. And I looked into that, and I wound up going into the paralegal program, um, actually a legal secretary program, and then I transferred into the paralegal program because it was really intriguing. And um, we did a lot of research, um, actually, when you use books, like shepherdizing and stuff like that. And we spent a lot of time at the um, law library, the IUPUI Law Library. And I don't know, it was very interesting to me. and. I was going to be typing, so I was going to be happy. <laughs> so I thought. No. <laughs> um, so when did you first hear about the Indiana Paralegal Association, and what made you want to join? Uh, let's see. Um, it was probably um, in about 2001, and I was working at Kiefer McGough, and um, I kind of had – we they didn't really have paralegals at that time, so I was kind of doing a legal secretary position, and then but it incorporated doing paralegal work, but we didn't have the titles. Um, and I think in two thousand and three, um, Pam, Pamela Rutherford, who um, is a past IPA president, I believe that she was involved, and then uh, Kiefer McGough really supported. Um, being in, involved in the community and all of that stuff. So um, I believe I became a member of IPA in 2003. Um, and they always rope you in uh, to be a board member mm -hmm. or to do something. Um, 
And it was just a way to, and, and I stress it still to this day, it's a way to network. It's a way to um, meet your fellow peers. And if you have questions, it's, it's this community that you can talk to. About how many members are there uh, today, and how is that compared to maybe some past years? Uh, our membership is actually a little bit down, and that's because COVID in the last two years. And um, I would say my membership director is probably going to hate me for this, mm -hmm. but um, I think we are around 200, 250 right now, and that's the entire state of Indiana. And some of them are um, paralegal students as well, because we also offer a paralegal student membership. Um, so, but it, the, the membership has been affected, um, because of COVID and, um, firms not wanting to pay for more than one, um, association like IndyBar, ISPA, or the IPA. So you have to pick. Right. Um, I'm fortunate enough that I can be, um, on the IPA and IndyBar that my firm pays for both. So that's nice. So as a member... What do you get, you know, in terms of uh, events and things like that? We do monthly meetings. Um, we have a full IPA website. Um, we offer um, CLEs, and those we're trying to ramp back up to doing all in-person stuff again. Um, so we offer the um, CLEs and either a half a day or a full day. I think we're working on um, some half and some fulls. Um, the student membership, if you're um, a student at IUPUI or any of the schools that have a paralegal program, we offer a discounted rate as far as the student membership goes. Um, one of the biggest benefits I think that I just touched on is networking um, and having those avenues. Um, if I don't do real estate or um, wills and trusts than someone I can ask. Um, those are really, I think, that's a really good benefit. And then we also have sections. So we have litigation section, any probate section, anything that you can think of pro bono, we have all of that that people can be involved in. And those people, um, those section chairs will um, have meetings, so input on what's new or rule changes or anything like that. Very similar to a, a bar association. Yes, yeah. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Uh, kind of just looking at the profession in general, um, I'm sure quite a bit's changed, but what, what are some of the major changes you've seen since um, you know COVID kind of hit? Everything has gone, um, as you are well aware, everything's gone remote. Um, Zoom, we're having, we had to come together and figure out how are we gonna hold our monthly meetings if we can't do it in person? How are we going to hold our board meetings if we can't do it in person? So then, you know, we get on the bandwagon with Zoom. Um, and that is working out very well, in my opinion. We always have some kind of technology issue. Um, I don't think those can ever really be avoided. Um, but we are doing our board meetings by Zoom. Um, we are starting to open those up to um, in person as well. But we are still offering the Zoom because we feel like we can't take that option away now. And that's a lot of, you know, work from home. Um, working from home remotely, um, it was kind of like a curse in the beginning. Um, I couldn't wait to get back to work. But then um, it was 
you get used to it and you have to get into a routine just like you get up in the morning you take a shower you you know have your coffee you you know do whatever um but it really affected the camaraderie um i'm sure you guys are probably got hit by that i don't know but you and even in the office standpoint not just the paralegal association standpoint but you don't have that camaraderie you can't just walk down um, to somebody's office and ask a question you can't brainstorm um I know I've picked up the phone a lot. I don't usually, I'm not a phone person. So I've picked up the phone a lot and have talked to a lot of my officers or board members and um, instead of the Zoom or whatever, it just seems a little bit more personal even though you can see people on Zoom. Sure. So tell us about your role as president. When did you take that? What does that entail? This is my second term. Um, as president of the IPA, it will be up in July. Um, so what are we? So 2020, yeah. I mm-hmm. took over as president from Lottie Waffen. Not a big deal that year. Nothing happened in 2020. No, <laughs> no, not at all. So it was kind of a very um, hard thing for me to be president during the COVID times. Um, so I felt like I wasn't really doing IPA any good because we weren't having the in-person meetings we weren't doing any of those types of things Um, but now that we're getting back to it it's a lot better but um, my role as president is just to oversee the board meetings run the board meetings Um, we vote on uh, financials and we have discussions about whatever needs to be discussed and policies and procedures that need to be updated or bylaws or anything like that I'm basically there, I feel like I'm basically there to answer questions, help guide um, the directors and officers where they need to go. Um, It doesn't take up too much of my time um, responding to emails, people who send uh, president at uh, indianaparalegals.org an email I respond to or info or whatever. Um, but my role is basically just to help guide the board so that we make appropriate decisions for our membership. Sure. What's some advice you might give to someone new to the profession, and um, why do you feel like this is, this is something that people should be interested in? My advice would be that um, it's really on-the-job training, so you really need to get your foot in the door as soon as possible. I would um, encourage persons to become, if they are in school, to become a student member of the IPA so you have those connections. Like I said, that's extremely, I feel like that is extremely important, um, that you have the connections, that you're networking, um, that you're familiar with the role of a paralegal, Um, We do offer um, paralegal panels to the schools. Um, um, uh, I think it's our education director who heads those up. Um, If you are a student, I would encourage you to attend those panels so that you learn more about what we do. Um, You are basically the right-hand man to the attorney. You are running files under their direction. Um, It's a lot of typing, it's a lot of reading. Um, Believe it or not, you're looking up court rules and and all of those stuff and making sure that you're within the parameters of where you need to be. Um, Discovery, uh, currently I'm summarizing depositions. Um, So I would just make sure that um, 
you find your niche too. And I know that you can't just find your niche coming right out of school, but I feel like it's very important that you enjoy the type of law that you will be working in. And if you have to work on the plaintiff side or defense side and you're doing medical malpractice or personal injury, I mean, everything is different. Um, but litigation, I, I, I wouldn't change that for the world. I love, I love litigation. Sure. <laughs> so what's the, the job market like for paralegals? You know, I'm curious if the pandemic has affected, you know, the way people use paralegals. I was actually, um, right when it started, um, I was looking for a job. Um, I was with a firm for three years, and um, I was just really overwhelmed in that position, and I needed something a little bit more more calm. And um, I found maybe a handful um, on LinkedIn or um, the other uh, job avenues, uh, and I didn't – I believe that they had, like, a lot of people um, interview – I think that a paralegal's role is still extremely important enough that there are jobs out there. Um, And I don't want to say that it was affected greatly by the pandemic, um, because I know that there were, I had applied for several different positions um, at different companies. Um, So I know that they were out there. I'm not really sure if it affected the profession or not. Um, And a lot of us, um, can work remotely. So I saw a lot of remote jobs out there as well for paralegals, um, which is just crazy to me that we can do everything paperless now, basically. So, and there's no need for files or hard copies or anything. It's, it's amazing. I don't know if I really answered your question. No, but yeah, but you did. <laughs> What's something a lawyer should know about the IPA and or paralegals in general? That's a good one. Thank you. Lawyers should know that um, being a member of the IPA um, benefits paralegals just as much as being a lawyer in the Indy Bar. Sure. Um, Some of the paralegals in Indiana are registered paralegals, which means they have to have CLE requirements just like lawyers do. and attending the CLEs, whether it be IPA, ISPA, or Indy Bar, um, keeps the paralegals up to date, just like the attorneys have to stay up to date for their CLEs and, and all of that stuff. I think um, being a member of the IPA um, is beneficial to the firm, uh, wherever the paralegal works, because it helps get the firm's name out too. And when you're speaking, you usually speak, oh, I work for Pamela Page, or I I worked for Dick Kiefer. And I know it's kind of like name dropping, but you wind up finding out um, who works for who. And um, I think having lawyers' names out there as well kind of brings everything together. Um, And I don't remember your other question. (laughs) Uh, Just, yeah, what what they should know about IPA paralegals just kind of in general. Paralegals benefit lawyers. Um, I have been very blessed to work with lawyers who acknowledge what paralegals are capable of. 
Um, we cannot practice law. We cannot give legal advice. Um, but I have been blessed because a lot of the lawyers that I have worked for just let you do your thing and don't micromanage. Um, you move cases for the lawyers, primarily with discovery, um, summarizing medical records, um, and they, we allow them to practice law by doing what we do. So I think that that's how um, paralegals benefit the lawyers. I mean, I'm sure I have more, but. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that'll do it for this week's episode. Thanks again to our guest, Indiana Paralegal Association President Laura Adamitis Therian for joining us today. As always, you can catch up on previous episodes of the Indiana Lawyer podcast via your favorite streaming service or on theindianalawyer.com. <laughs>